Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. I'm Rick Edwards. I serve as a discipleship uh, director here at Emmaus Road and am part of the preaching team that's preaching for you each week in the interim until we find a new pastor that comes to lead us as well. Um, Right off the bat, I want to let you know that I have in my hands a $15 gift card to Starbucks, which I will award to any, to the first person who answers a trivia question about the sermon today. I will meet you in the vestibule right after the service, and the first person to answer correctly the question that I give you will get awarded this Starbucks card. I'm not above bribery. So, first of all, though I do want to kind of uh, reiterate what uh, Pastor Daniel uh, laid out for us uh, last week, kind of the plan going forward for the interim period here about where our preaching series will go. There are kind of four major topics or series that we're going to cover. Uh, The first one is called The Promise, and we started that last week, and we'll continue that for another several weeks until the time of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost comes. It kind of helps us through our journey towards Pentecost and talks about the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which is what happened on the day of Pentecost, and that's why we celebrate Pentecost Sunday on those days. The second series that will take us for several weeks was called The Mount, Instructions for Life from Jesus as he preached it on or taught it on the Sermon on the Mount. It'll be a series of of sermons based on different selections from the Sermon on the Mount. And then after that will be The Way. Uh, Again, looking at the gospel stories of where Jesus demonstrated the nature of the kingdom of God through his uh, miraculous um, healings, different signs, uh, kind of like the kingdom in action. And then the fourth series that will take us up clear to the beginning, ne- the beginning of the next Christian year, which is Advent, um, will be called The Mystery. Again, looking at stories from the Gospels, uh, looking at the nature of the upside-down-ness of the kingdom of God, as told through some of Jesus' parables, which were kind of sometimes baffling or mysterious, but also had a deeper meaning that points us towards the nature of the kingdom of God. So that's kind of the, a roadmap for where we're going you know, over the long run. And right now we are in, again, as I mentioned, the second week of what we're calling the promise, talking about our journey towards Pentecost and how that, what that means for us to have the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. So, and as we're kind of working in this uncertain but significant period of time in the history of our church here, our congregation, um, and as we're working towards uh, Pentecost, Um, I think that we can find some reassurance and hope from this promise. And while we're talking about it, let's be specific about what that promise is. It comes to us from the book of Acts, the very first chapter. Jesus is telling his disciples, Jesus the risen one, is meeting with his disciples before he leaves and ascends to the Father. He tells them this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And from that point on, the rest of the story of the book of Acts kind of tells about how that promise is fulfilled in the life of the early church. 
So the book, the whole book, the Acts of the Apostles, so it's the technical name, it's basically a theological history of how the kingdom of God expanded from that point on, continued by his disciples, and according to the geographical spread of the faith, again, those words, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, as I have a map I'd like us to look at here. Do we have a, a picture of that? Which kind of tells us, so you can see the geography that's mentioned in that promise. Um, the, the disciples were in Jerusalem, and then it spread into Samaria, which is a, a little bit larger uh, area further away from Jerusalem, and then out into the Mediterranean Sea, and eventually across the Roman world, the Roman world around the Mediterranean. And so as you read through the book of Acts, the first part of that book tells about how the, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and came upon the disciples and kind of empowered them and motivated them to carry out this mission, this promise that Jesus gave them. And so the first couple of chapters are about what, how the church was organizing itself in Jerusalem um, and in the little region around Jerusalem called Judea. And then later on, a few chapters later, one of the disciples, Philip, takes the gospel to the area, larger area of Samaria. And that, again, expands the scope of the Christian mission. And then in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, there's a story of the dramatic conversion of Saul, and he took on the new name of Paul, who became like one of the leading, or perhaps the leading, um, apostle in the New Testament. And much of the rest of the book of Acts is about Paul's journeys. Um, in chapter 10, there's the conversion of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion. Um, he becomes a Christian, and that is an important part of the story of Acts as well. And then the rest of the book, like I mentioned, is basically about the rest of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So um, some writers, people that have studied the book of Acts, they don't call it, they think a better name for it would be instead of Acts of the Apostles, should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is what kind of motivates and energizes and empowers those disciples to take the gospel to these different places that are mentioned in the books of Acts. And really, when you start looking at the New Testament and the book of Acts especially, you can see how that could be true. In the whole, all of the Old Testament, 39 books, and you know how long that all those books together are, um, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God is mentioned about 78 times when it refers specifically to God's Spirit. In the book of Acts itself, it appears 57 times. And if you add on Paul's letters, um, that's another 137 times where they mention the phrase, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. So you can see Paul and the book of Acts and the early disciples were full of and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit and how important the Holy Spirit is, which is why we're looking at this series of sermons called this promise. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the early church. So maybe if we were to go back and... Um, I think I've jotted some notes down in your little notes section of your worship folder there. Um, the Acts of the Apostles is a theological history of the mission of Jesus as continued by his disciples. But you might want to add in there, by the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit, told according to the geographical spread of the faith. So today's sermon, we're going to look at a little snippet of the story of Acts and it takes place kind of in between um, the conversion of Saul, who later takes on the name Paul, 
um, which is an important thing because he becomes a huge figure in the rest of the history of the church. In between that and the conversion of Cornelius, that Roman centurion, in between there's this little story of a little road trip that Peter took. And so we're going to look at that story today. Um, it's about Peter, uh, a Greek man named Aeneas, and a wo Jewish woman named Dorcas, or also Tabitha. She goes by two different names. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. But the story is told just in a few verses in the ninth chapter of Acts, and I'll read it for us, and I think we'll have it on the screen as well. It's Acts 9, 31 to 43. Meanwhile, the church through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Now, as Peter went here and there among all the brothers and sisters, he came down also to the saints living in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. And at that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who had heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with a request, please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing him tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Amen. So what I'd like to do is give us a kind of a quick overview of this story, and then I'm going to circle back and dig a little bit deeper into the story of um, Tabitha or Dorcas. Um, first of all, Peter's road trip appears to be a kind of a, an inspection tour or a checkup tour um, for the expanding churches that are growing outside of Jerusalem, where the whole mission, the whole story of the early Christian church started. Um, it's part of the expansion of that Jesus movement into Gentile territories and populations, which again is a fulfillment of that promise of Jesus that we just read in Acts 1.8. So here's another slide, another map for us to look at. Um, I think Do we have that. If you can spot Jerusalem down kind of the lower center, that's the city where the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost uh, happened with the disciples. And from there, they, the churches started growing and spreading and popping up all over. And you can see just a little bit to the northwest of Jerusalem, there's Lydda, or Lod, as it's known now. And then further to the northwest, right on the coast, is Joppa, which is now part of the city of Tel Aviv, Israel. 
So that whole coastal plain there is fairly flat, and that's also called the Plain of Sharon, which is why that name popped up earlier in our scripture passage. And so we see that the church is spreading out from Jerusalem in all sorts of different directions. And it's got, gotten out to the coast, which is a little bit less Jewish and a lot more Greek and Roman in its influence. In fact, right up the coast, you can see there's a city called Caesarea, named after Caesar, right? That's the Roman capital of the um, country of Palestine. And in fact, if you remember our stories where Pilate is um, kind of judging Jesus in Jerusalem, he's just there temporarily. His headquarters were in Caesarea. They had a huge port right there on a harbor where all the ships came in, lots of amphitheaters and coliseums. All of that was all Roman built and Roman influenced. And so the Roman and Greek influence was stronger on the coast because coasts and port cities always seem to be more open to different cultures because of all the different traffic from parts of the world come in through there. So we can see how the gospel is spreading from the capital of the Jewish uh, nation, Jewish people in Jerusalem, out to, into these other areas here where it's less Jewish and more Roman and Greek influence as far as the culture is concerned. So in Lydda, as we see, that Peter encountered this paralyzed man, Aeneas, which is a Greek name, and we should notice. Um, and after he heals him, then he goes to Joppa, or he's actually called to Joppa by some disciples from that church in Joppa. He encounters a woman who was in much worse shape than Aeneas was. She wasn't disabled. She wasn't in a coma. She was stone dead. I mean, she was deceased. She was expired, bereft of life, gone to meet her maker. She'd rung down the curtain and joined the church eternal. So to be blunt, she was an ex-Dorcas is what she was. Now, Peter did exactly what he had seen Jesus do. If you'll notice in these healing stories here and in this resurrection story, it almost copies exactly what some stories from the gospels of what Jesus did. Jesus was approached by a man named Jairus he was a leader of the local synagogue there. And he said, my daughter is dying. Can you come heal her? But before Jesus could get there, the daughter had died. But nevertheless, Jesus arrived there, shooed everybody out of the room, um, told her to get up, and she got up. So this is almost a carbon copy. This healing of, or this resurrection, I should say, of, of Dorcas or Tabitha is almost a carbon copy of what Jesus did with the daughter of Jairus in the Gospels. Um, with Aeneas, Peter explicitly says, Jesus Christ has healed you. But with Tabitha or Dorcas, um, Peter follows Jesus' example, except for he stops first to pray, which again points us back towards the power behind this miracle, right? It's Jesus' power, resurrection power at work. Um, so explicitly spoken with Aeneas, but kind of implied by the fact that first, Peter prays before he speaks to the dead Tabitha. Um, what I want us to do is uh, circle back a little bit towards looking at um, Tabitha in more detail. Um, well, before that, I do want to mention the fact that Jesus or Peter prayed was probably an important uh, cue for us as well. Um, We've been encouraged by the church board, and properly so, that we need to focus really hard on a prayer during this time in our interim period of life so we can have guidance for where our church should be going. Um, and along those lines, we've provided this prayer journal. 
It's a day-by-day -day journal that takes us from today, or actually started last week, up through Pentecost. And it's a daily prayer journal that includes um, a little scripture for each day. Um, then there's a little devotional based on that scripture, scriptural insights is what they're called. And then a brief little prayer, printed prayer that you can pray. And then a place for you to jot down some reflections or thoughts of your own um, on whatever's going on in your life. And it kind of follows a threefold way of looking at your life and what your prayer needs are. Uh, talking about how you pray for God's protection, how you would pray for God's direction in your life or the life of our church, and also then what revelation or what new insights will God give us uh, through our prayer time. And you can jot those down with some space in here. So there's several number of copies of these that are available out there in the vestibule as well. You can pick one of those up um, and take those home with you and use them for this time in our church's life would be helpful, not only for each of us individually, but as a congregation as well. Um, also, if you'll notice in the stories here, the, the, um, each of the, he, the miracles, both Aeneas's healing and Tabitha's resurrection, end with this little formula that talks about how people were brought to the faith as a result of these miracles that Peter performed. In verse 35, it mentions that um, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. And at the very end, in verse 42, uh, after Tabitha has been raised from the dead, this became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So that's a similar kind of a wrap-up, kind of a summary statement of what the effect of these miracles were, and what... Um, effect it had on the growth of the church in that area. And then at the very end of the Tabitha story, in verse 43, there's an extra, a little add-on there. It says that Peter stays in Joppa with this guy named Simon, who was a tanner. That's not just a throwaway kind of a thing, it seems like it, but um, in the Jewish tradition, uh, someone who was a tanner was considered to be unclean because they had to work with dead animals and the stench of their work was overpowering. So they were kind of like an outsider, even though they might be part of the Jewish people, they were considered maybe a bit unclean, um, just like maybe a leper would be or something like that that we read about in the Gospels. Um, the fact that Peter, a straight righteous Jew who was following the law, would stay with Simon the Tanner um, is a significant pointer towards what happens next in chapter 10. And it will become kind of like a, well, basically, it's going to rock Peter's worldview about who is in, who is out, and also point the Christian movement in a brand new direction that is going to have significant influences. But we can't get into that today. That'll be next week. So Pastor Daniel will talk to us about that, right? So for right now, let's circle back and look at Tabitha in a little bit more detail. It says that Tabitha was devoted to good works and acts of charity. And apparently she was either a seamstress or maybe she wove cloth together because she'd made clothing for an overlooked group of people called the widows. Um, in Jewish tradition, widows, orphans, the foreigner, and the poor were considered special people who had to be looked for, looked out for because they were li likely to get um, ignored or set, set aside. So Tabitha had this ministry of ministering to and providing for the needs of the widows in the church in Joppa. 
And she did that by providing clothing. And it talks about how they showed the tunics and other clothing uh, to Peter when he arrived, the things that Tabitha had done, the, the work of her hands. Um, that's no small task when you think about it because back in those days, of course, there wasn't mass production of clothing. Like you could walk into a store and see stacks and stacks of different sizes and colors of all the same you know, garment. Um, everything had to be made by hand. And apparently Tabitha was good at that and that was her ministry to those people. Um, Tabitha's good deeds, though, um, if we understand the gospel correctly, I think, um, aren't necessarily a means of earning her salvation or even an, a repayment of an obligation. For her, it was done as an act of love for Christ. And that is the motivation for her ministry here. Um, I, I want to read a poem uh, for us. It was... Um, Talks about it was written by George MacDonald actually, and I don't know if you've heard his name before, but he was like a major influence for C.S. Lewis, for J.M. Barrie who wrote the Peter Pan stories, um, Lewis Carroll who wrote the Alice in Wonderland stories, um, more modern people like Madeline Lingle and Neil Gaiman, all these people that write in the fantasy genre that point back towards George MacDonald as being their um, mentor and or example or. And I'm going to need a copy of someone's notes because I forgot to leave my um, copy here. Do you have that? Thanks, Noah. So everybody except Noah can follow along if you want, but I'm going to read this, <laughs> read this poem by George MacDonald titled simply, Dorcas. If I might guess, then guess I would, that mid the gathered folk, this gentle Dorcas one day stood and heard when Jesus spoke. She saw his woven seamless coat, half envious for his sake. Oh, happy hands, she said, that wrought the honored thing to make. Her eyes with longing tears grow dim. She never can come nigh to work one service poor for him, for whom she glad would die. But hark, he speaks, oh, precious word. And she has heard indeed, when did we see thee naked, Lord, and clothe thee in thy need? The king shall answer, Inasmuch as to my brethren ye did it even to the least of such, ye did it unto me. Home, home she went, and plied the loom, and Jesus' poor arrayed. She died, they wept about the room, and showed the coats she made. So George MacDonald, I think, captures this idea of the love that lies behind Tabitha's ministry of making these clothes, these tunics and other clothes for the people in her church, especially the widows. And that is, a, I think, an important reminder for us when we go about doing our good works and our good deeds, which we know we're called to do, um, doing it out of the love for Christ and Christ alone and above all is perhaps our best motivation for doing our good works, just like Tabitha did. Her primary love or motivation was her love for Christ. But there was this also this horizontal application, right, of her love for Christ, the widows that she served. So we see that Christ is reflected in Tabitha's holding of her resources with open hands, and she pours herself out for the widows and sharing not just her material resources and her skills, but probably also her time and her attention, too. Um, as it's been said, attention is the rarest and the purest form of generosity, really. So Tabitha cared for these vulnerable women, 
and she counted them as friends and sisters and nourished their lives with her own until it was given back to God. A second thing, uh, important aspect about Tabitha is Tabitha as a church leader. Um, in, in the original Greek language, uh, the Greek language has um, different genders for different words. It has a masculine gender, a feminine gender, uh, a neutral gender, and even a fourth gender, which I can't remember how that is used. But anyway, the important thing is that here in the Greek, um, the feminine form of the word disciple is used to describe Tabitha. She is a disciple, female. And that's the only time in the whole New Testament that anyone is called a disciple, and any woman is called a disciple. A lot of men are called disciples, but there are no other women, even though there are lots of women mentioned in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, none of them is called with this title that's given to Tabitha, disciple. And I think that's important for the fact that um, the role of women in the early church um, was one of those new things that came about that kind of went beyond the traditional Jewish um, understanding or um, place of women in the religion. And part of that is influenced, and we have to think about that because based on, well, that map's not up there, based on where this story takes place, there's going to be some cultural influences here that are important for us. And one of them has to do with, in Roman society, there was almost all of your political and social connections were based on the patronage system. So there were patrons and then there were clients. And um, clients um, received legal representation from their patron or maybe got a loan of money from them. Um, the influence of their patron in making business deals or marriages or if you wanted to run for political office, um, you needed the support of your patron. And on the other hand, in return for these services, a patron would receive from their client um, perhaps support if they were involved in a war or if they were captured in a war, your client would raise money for a ransom so you could be ransomed back uh, from the enemy. Um, you would provide your support to your patron for a political campaign, um, making known that you supported this person for this particular office. Um, and mainly just showing up, being with, accompanying your patron whenever they went out in public, kind of like your entourage or your posse or whatever. A client was expected to um, do that for their patron. Um, and the number of clients that a patron had kind of helped uh, advertise your social position. So the client-patron kind of thing was very important. So if I were your patron, perhaps I could say to you, Someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to perform a service for me. And then, as my client, you would be obligated to perform that service if, when I called upon you if I needed it. So, under Roman law in this era, um, if you had a, a patron, or, um, then you were in a good spot. And if you were a patron and had lots of clients, uh, that would help boost your uh, social standing. Another thing about that is that in Roman law, when a woman's father died, um, you as a woman would inherit um, an equal portion of his estate. Um, so if you had like four kids, it would be divided up four ways, male and female, all got the same. Um, and even if you were married, you still controlled the portion of your inheritance from your father. So, um, and if your husband died, you would also get back the money that you provided for your dowry. 
and you would get all that money plus any interest that may, it may have accrued at that time. So a woman actually could become more wealthy as a widow um, than she was when her husband was alive, which be careful out there for the men. Um, but the fact is that there were wealthy women that existed in this period and in this culture. Um, and it's possible, and I think maybe probable, that Tabitha maybe was a wealthy woman that had, um, was a patron for these widows and maybe for the church itself in Joppa. Um, and maybe it must have been a key leader for that church there. Think about it. Remember, the story is told where she, her body is laid out in an upper room in a house. Whose house was that? Why was she there in that house? Maybe it was her house. And having at least two stories, it was probably a pretty significant house. Perhaps that was the house that the church met in, the people from Joppa. So maybe that was uh, Tabitha's house. Tabitha also apparently had time and money to get resources for making all these clothes and tunics. Where did that come from? She must have had some kind of monetary resources as well. The fact that it was an urgent plea by her church members when they went to Peter and said, please come quickly, even though she had already passed away, um, tells us that there was something important to the, them about her in that church. And the fact that Peter came right away without, even, without question also could be a pointer to the fact that maybe he even knew about Tabitha, knew who she was and how important she was to this church. All of that, I think, points us to the fact that Tabitha's loss um, was a huge deal for the people in Joppa and the church in Joppa. And of course, the loss of any life is a sad thing, especially someone who's involved in doing good works like Tabitha was. But being a well-to-do property owner with resources and the spirit and the willingness to help, um, I think was probably um, something that might have even threatened the, the growth of the church at this important time for this newborn faith community in Joppa. And not only is Tabitha's story important, but there are other important women in the book of Acts. And they have significant roles. And their significant roles in early Christianity is one more sign of the work of the Holy Spirit at work in the new, in the new, new church. Again, a fulfillment of the promise that's laid out in um, the first part of the chapter, first chapter of Acts. Um, in fact, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples that were gathered together in Jerusalem, um, Peter had to explain to those who were watching what was going on. And part of, part of his explanation was, was considered the first Christian sermon. Part of that, he points back to this prophecy from the Old Testament prophet, Joel. He said, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes this from the uh, book of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So the Holy Spirit brought um, into the new church, into the church, this new idea of the women's role in uh, the religious life of the community. So Tabitha, as the only person named as a disciple, feminine, feminine gender there, feminine noun, um, was only the first. Later on in the book of Acts, we read about this lady named Lydia, who was a wealthy business owner who helped start the church in the town of Philippi when Paul got there. Also Priscilla was an important teacher 
Um, she taught several of the other disciples the, way, the ways of Christianity. All of those are mentioned in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts as important women leaders in the early church. Now, our denomination, Church of the Nazarene, um, grew out of what was called the holiness movement back in the 1800s in the United States. And the, considered the, the, the beginner or the, a major influence in the holiness movement was a lady named Phoebe Palmer. She was a Methodist woman who, um, again, had some money because she was married to a doctor at that time. But she's considered one of the founders of the American holiness movement. In 1837, she started this little home Bible study called the Tuesday Meeting for the Promotion of Holiness. And it was just a neighborhood, a neighborhood Bible study that eventually grew and grew and grew. And finally, men started asking, can we come too? And so men were allowed to come later on. And then it grew and grew and grew until she was a popular speaker all across the country and even went to Europe and uh, to France and England to talk about, to speak, to preach, to provide sermons explaining what their view of holiness was. Um, so she wrote several books. One of them is called The Way of Holiness, which was like the textbook on what the holiness theology and, and movement was all about. And then later in 1859, she published this book called The Promise of the Father, which was 434 pages um, explaining the role, proper role of women as leaders in the church based on this promise of the father found in the prophecy of Joel. The Holy Spirit came on men and women equally. And therefore in the holiness movement, at least and in Christianity at large, women um, had a scriptural basis for being uh, leaders in the churches. And so she went about uh, speaking, pre uh, preaching, writing about this um, phenomenon. Now, when she was England, in England, she was speaking on this topic. One of the people that were there that heard her was this lady named Catherine Booth. Um, and in the same year, she turned around and wrote her own little version of this 434-page volume. It was just a pamphlet. She called it Female Ministry, Woman's Right to Preach the Gospel, 1859 in England. Um, later, she and her husband, William Booth, started this little Christian mission in London in 1865 and in 1878 they changed the name to the Salvation Army so maybe you've heard of that they are our cousins theologically um, and they have early on have had a place for women high in leadership in fact um, Catherine Booth's daughter Evangeline became the first general female general of the Salvation Army back in the 1930s um, here in America one more story to tell you about, uh, a lady named Elsie Wallace. Now, the Church of the Nazarene grew out of this holiness movement that Phoebe Palmer started. Um, and on the West Coast, it was where the Church of the Nazarene has its oldest roots. 1895, a Methodist preacher named Phineas Brzee started this inner city mission. And they eventually grew and grew and grew, and it actually became an organized church. And then from there, they became an organized denomination, and they called it the Church of the Nazarene. Well, um, Phineas Brzee had an associate that went up preaching and teaching and explaining about what the Church of Nazarene was all about. And on a trip up to Spokane, Washington, this assistant um, met this lady who was involved again in an inner city mission in the city of Spokane in 1902. 
Um, and they decided that they wanted to join this Church of the Nazarene. So he organized a, a church uh, called the Church of the Nazarene um, and appointed Mrs. Wallace, Elsie Wallace, as the pastor. And it was because the people that were there uh, voted to have her be that, uh, their leader. And later that year, Phineas Brzee himself, the founder of the Church of the Nazarene from Los Angeles, he visited Spokane and he ordained her as an official ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene, the very first one in the Church of the Nazarene's history. So she and her husband, Elsie and her husband, established other churches. Um, she became the pastor of Seattle First Church. Later on, she started a church in Walla Walla, Washington, and she was the pastor there for nine years. And then later on was appointed to become the district superintendent uh, for the Northwest District in 1920. So, and that was just about the, the peak of women in ministry in the Nazarene Church. Um, in 1925, about 13% of all the pastors in the United States were women in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, but in the 1920s, the movement called fundamentalism um, started um, believing that women weren't allowed to be leaders in the church. And so that pattern kind of affected the Church of the Nazarene until the, the percentage of women pastors in the church kind of went down and down and down until like in 1985, only one and a half percent of Nazarene churches in the United States had women pastors. Now, thankfully, those numbers are starting to go back up again, um, especially the last 20 years. In 2001, 8% of senior pastors and associate pastors were women in the United States. But in 1920 or 2021, that percentage had grown to 26%, which is good news. Maybe it's still not ideal, but so now you can understand how blessed we are to have Pastor Grace as part of our church, because not only is she a wonderful children's pastor and a fun person to be with, she's also an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene, has theological training, and is authorized to lead a people of God, a congregation of people um, in the entire congregation for us. So she, Pastor Grace, is a spiritual heir of Tabitha from the New, from the New Testament. So thinking about Tabitha's story then, um, kind of bringing it back home here, Tabitha's uh, ministry of doing good and helping the poor, um, I think, I wonder, perhaps maybe the Apostle Paul knew her, or at least knew of her. He wrote um, in the book of Galatians, he wrote this to the people there in that church, whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's in Colossians 8, or 6 rather, 8 through 10. So we are enjoined, we are encouraged to do these acts of good works, of deeds, helping the poor, um, and especially within our own congregation. So Pastor Daniel told us about this care fund that we're providing for the Mitchell family. That's one example of us doing good works. Um, and a lot of it, like with Tabitha, maybe she's not, not particularly well known. Um, a lot of our good works are kind of in the shadows or in the background. We don't know a lot about them. Um, I think about uh, Laura Dare, who every week provides, uh, pre uh, prepares our, our uh, communion elements and cleans up afterwards, sets out a wonderful table of refreshments and goods every Sunday for our worship time or our welcoming time. 
Um, I think of Nina Rattle, who kind of oversees the works and the looks of the outside of the building, the plants and things. Um, and it's not just limited to women either. John Rattle mows the lawn every week or every time it needs to be mowed, right? Those things that lie in the background. Um, Crystal Van Cole, who serves as our treasurer. We can't get along without a treasurer, but does anybody know what she does? She keeps track of all of our financial records and provides information to the board to make decisions financially and keeps all those records correct. All of those kinds of people that live in the background and work for us to help our church function as a church um, are following in Tabitha's book footsteps, I think. And as we mentioned before, these good works aren't necessarily um, a prerequisite to salvation. They're not a requirement, an obligation. Um, they're natural outgrowth of our love for Christ and Christ's church. And that is true to our theology. It's our good works are a fruit of our salvation, not the way to get salvation, right? The faith and the good works go hand in hand in our theology, like a tree that naturally produces fruit. So be careful when we think about doing our good deeds that you don't try to guilt yourself into doing it or should yourself into doing them. Let the Holy Spirit move and flow within you so that your good works will be a natural outgrowth of your love for Christ. Um, as maybe a, a good practice or an exercise for us, um, I found this prayer that we could pray before we serve others, but you can probably do it anytime. And it's in your uh, sermon notes there. And I'd invite you, as you feel comfortable, to join me in praying this prayer aloud right now. Um, it's called a prayer before serving others. So I invite you to pray with me or listen. O Christ, who made himself the servant of all, we would set our hearts and our affections upon you and upon you alone. For we can serve others rightly only when our service is undertaken from first to last as an act of devotion offered to you. In serving you, we are freed from our need for the praise of others, so that even if our kindnesses are shed from scarred hearts as rain from a sloped tin roof, our joy will not be dimmed, for we will know that you have received and remembered each act of sacrifice and reckoned it as a love rendered to you. May our love be sincere and let our service be fearless, O Lord. Grant that we would serve in imitation of you who poured your life out for us. May we serve knowing that your spirit is ever at work in the lives of those we serve, ever calling, ever drawing, ever seeking to soften hearts encased in fear and disappointment and anger and idolatry. So let our kindnesses and sacrifice fall like warm sunlight on frozen ground. We cannot know the end of another person's story, and our lives so often intersect but briefly. So help us to be content to minister regardless of visible outcomes, trusting that the small mercies we extend will be woven into the larger theme of redemption at work in the lives of others as you woo them to yourself, drawing their hearts by graces offered. And shape our own hearts too, as we learn to serve well, and by learning to serve well, learn to love well. Amen. Another aspect of 
what we learn from Tabitha is that there is power through times of loss and fear. The widows showed Peter the clothes that Tabitha had made for them. But after the resurrection of Tabitha, Peter showed them an alive Tabitha, right? And when I say that we power through loss and fear, I don't mean that we are forcing ourselves or willing ourselves to move on past our grief or uh, prematurely ignore our feelings of any kind of loss that we might have suffered. Maybe we shouldn't uh, be surprised that for Tabitha, because her life was built on the pattern of Christ's own life, she was the very first disciple that we know of who would partake in Christ's resurrection power. She was the first recipient of that. The way of Jesus is a way of death that, life has no, that death has no power over, even when everything would lead us to believe the opposite. So this story from the book of Acts tells us that Tabitha's resurrection is a sign that the Holy Spirit continues the work of new creation that was begun with Jesus' resurrection. And it's a reassurance that God cares about and provides for loss of key Christian leaders. I know that most of us were surprised or shocked or both when Pastor Andy announced his resignation. His role in our church has been huge. And my first fearful thought for the future of the church was probably, I'm sure, the same as yours. That leaves Noah as our only drummer. <laughs> Where are we going to find another drummer who can also preach? No, I'm joking. Seriously, Andy was a wonderful preacher, an administrator and a leader, and his family will continue to be missed. But even as we work through our grieving process and this interim process, Tabitha's story can be a reassurance for us that God will care for Emmaus Road Church, just as he did for that church in Joppa. Not by bringing Andy back, I'm not suggesting that, but by seeing that we are, we are led to a pastoral leader who will be suitable for us. And I think Tabitha's story has something to say for us personally as well. Um, we all have our own kinds of losses and fears, right? Uh, loss of loved ones to death or maybe to alienation or divorce. Uh, we might have experienced the loss of a job or a loss of certainty or a feeling of security. Um, all of these griefs are underlied by one thing. That's the loss of what's familiar. A loss that makes us feel like we belong and we're secure and we know our place in the world. Losses have a, ten a tendency to disorient us uh, in those areas. But Tabitha's story tells us that God will be faithful to be with us uh, in those times, through those times, however long they might last. And God may not necessarily work by bringing people or relations back the way they were, but by providing for our core needs and leading us into new places and situations that will be new sources of joy and growth and service for us. Amen. Let it be so.